This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Bob Hughes is the guest speaker on this message. Turn to 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 is where we're going to begin this morning. If you're a guest with us, we are so glad that you're here. You can grab that that pew Bible in front of you if you like and turn to page 577. And if you don't have a Bible, just take it. You can have that as a gift from us. We're we're just so grateful to have you with us. Let's jump in. As always, uh, guys that don't speak as often have a ton they want to bring. And uh, the time tends to still be the same every Sunday. So uh, you can pray for me, but uh, not just for that. Let's, let's ask the Lord to, uh, to really open our hearts to his word this morning. Lord, thank you for this wonderful church. Thank you for this church that I love. Lord, thank you even more for this church that you love. And uh, Lord, you're building this church for your glory. You're at work in every one of our lives. We pray as we engage your word this morning, Lord, that uh, the lights would come on that our hearts would be softened, that that your hands would form and change us, that we'd see different, that we'd choose different, that your grace would empower us to be different for your great glory, for the glory of Jesus, for the good of the world, for our great joy. In Jesus' name, amen. I guess I'll throw this down there. Here we go. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Today's uh, message, the title of today's message is Taking Hold of Real Life. And uh, I'll just begin by asking you a question. When you hear the words eternal life, what comes to mind? What do you think of when you think of the phrase eternal life? You don't have to answer right now. It'd be, it would be disorderly. We're in church. Don't do that. But, but think about it and actually come up. What do you, what do you think of? Is it, is it the gift that we receive in Christ through his amazing death in our place, resurrection from the cross? Uh, is that what it is? Is it, is it living forever with Jesus when we die? What do you think of when you think of eternal life? Is it the hope of heaven? Those are all, all really good things. We're going to look at a passage this morning that addresses a surprising and profound relation between eternal life and material possessions. And we're in a series entitled Everyday Gospel, Closing the Gap Between Sunday Faith and Everyday Life. The purpose of this series is to help each of us see that there's more to God's purpose in Christ than simply forgiving our sins and taking us to heaven, right? As mind-blowing, as awesome, as uh, wonderful as those things are. God's salvation plan for this fallen world is complete restoration. 
complete restoration. The restor- the, what the scripture calls the restoration of all things. In Colossians 1.18 it says, And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, here's the phrase, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Ephesians 1, uh, verses 9 and 10, tell us a similar story. God's purpose in Christ, his plan from the fullness of time, is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. God's salvation plan is holistic. God's unrelenting mission through the gospel is to individually restore the whole of our lives to the reign of Christ, right? But then he doesn't just stop with restoring the whole of our lives. He then invites us to join us in a mission to globally restore the whole of the world to the reign of Christ. And God's salvation plan is also comprehensive. It involves the whole of our personhood. It it involves both our soul, however you want to describe that, and our body, the physical part of our body. It involves the whole of reality, both the spiritual and the material aspects of, of this world. And the Lord is after every part of our lives and every part of the world that our lives influence. Isn't that thrilling? Isn't it great to be part of such a massive mission with God? It's absolutely tremendous. And the last verse, I hope we have our, do we have our, put up our verse here this morning? There you go. Thank you. The last phrase of our verse is what ties the whole thing together. And you would think that a section of scripture that talks about money is somehow going to be motivated by, you know, the church needs your money or, uh, You need to plan for the future or some kind of practical thing. But guess what the reason is to be a good steward with our money? It's that we may take hold of that which is truly life. That we can take hold of that which is truly life. The the literal word, if you were to take a look at the Greek in in that phrase, here's what it says. It says that they may take hold of the life that's truly life. The life that is truly life. The word life is is an amazing word. Jesus said, I've come that you might have that kind of life, not just life where you breathe in and out, but a life that is a, a whole nother dimension of life that transforms everything in terms of the way we see life, in terms of the power that we have to engage life, in terms of our ability to be everything that God wants us to be. It's not an ordinary life, but it's a whole new dimension. And the scripture this morning is going to show us that there's a direct correlation between taking hold of this life, the, the, the life that is really life, and how we engage material possessions. Verse 17 begins addressing the rich in this present age. And here's a question for you. Who are the rich in our present age. As we look around Frisco, Texas, as you look around your neighborhood, you look around 
where you come and go to work, stuff you do, grocery store, wherever. Who are the rich of our present age? Reading the paper, looking online. We're tempted to think it's Bill Gates, it's Warren Buffett, right? It's Carlos Slim, it's it's doctors, lawyers, entrepreneurs, engineers. It's the business owner guys, right? It's when you really get down to it, it's the people with a nicer house, a little nicer car, a little more money in their 401k than me, right? Isn't that, isn't that always the rich of, of this world? We think that that's who the rich are. Isn't that right? Right? But if, if that's what we thought, if that's what you thought, we'd be wrong. We'd be terribly wrong. We'd be seriously wrong. And our wrong thinking about that could really have a profound effect on how we live our lives. From, from the Bible's perspective, there's only three categories of wealth. First, there's the poor. The poor. And the poor are those that don't have basic needs. Uh, it would be the destitute the indigent, uh, those who desperately need help, who desperately need mercy, who should be cared for in every possible way that we can. The second category is the provided for, the provided for. And the provided for have food, clothing, shelter for today. Uh, You know, we're supposed to pray, Lord, give us our daily bread, right? And the provided for have what they need for today. And then there's category three. And category three is the prosperous. So we've got the poor, the provided for, and the prosperous. That's my my little P thing today, okay? Poor, prosperous, poor, provided for, and prosperous. And the prosperous have enough for many people over many days. Well, the overwhelming majority of the people that live anywhere near Frisco, Texas, enjoy lives of unspeakable prosperity. Even folks whose income falls below the U.S. poverty line would be considered wealthy, both by the standards of Scripture as well as by the standards of the economics of the rest of the world. Some, some examples. If you have a car in any semblance of working order. I mean, it may be a total pig, okay? But if it can get you down the road, if you can go to the grocery store and back, if it works, you're among, among the, the, the 93% richest people in the world. Top 93% richest people in the world. If you have any kind of a car, if you make over $25,000 a year, and you're thinking, I can't, I could not live on it. Well, if you make over $25,000 a year, you make more than 90% of the world's population. If you make more than $50,000 a year, you make more than 99% of the world's population if you make over $50,000. And the point of that is not to rub your nose and make you feel bad but to take honestly the real truth of our financial position, the real truth of our financial reality. Nobody in this room is poor. We're, we're all crazy wealthy. No one's hungry. Our grocery stores stock over 35,000 
skews of choices. We have, we're going to be okay, okay? 35,000 SKUs. If I don't want to go to the grocery store, I can just use my phone and Amazon Fresh is going to deliver my groceries to my door. I don't have to worry about that. We have a safe place to sleep. If you don't have a place to sleep, you, there are friends here that will give you a safe place to sleep. We have clean water to drink. We are not just avail, able to feed our own families. We're able to feed our pets. And every month, Amazon does a great job of delivering to my front door a 25-pound bag of the finest, most nutritious dog stuff, whatever that is, that a dog could ever dream of every month. And it's on auto-deliver. And I I actually need to stop it because I'm getting more of the dog food than than Buddy can keep up with. But, But my pet doesn't do anything for me. But but he does not do anything. He doesn't hunt for food. He does not uh, chase off vermin. Uh, He just follows me around the house and looks at me like I am awesome. And uh, and that is worth a lot. But but we've got to understand that in past generations, Buddy would have been dinner for somebody. Okay? Buddy would have been dinner and we're able to have pets and live the life we do is because we're crazy rich people. The reality is that you and I are the rich in this present age. And this instruction to the rich that we find in 1 Timothy has everything to do with you and me in Frisco, Texas. This is not uh, somebody out there somewhere. It isn't Warren Buffett. It's me. It's you. And Paul tells Timothy to charge the rich. That means us. Paul tells Timothy, charge the rich of this world to watch out lest these riches hinder their call to take hold of the life that's really life. To take hold of what matters. To take hold of who they are. And, you know, it's hard for pastors to charge the church about money issues. It's one of the things that's so fun uh, being in the role that I'm in. I, I don't get a nickel from the, the church, so I can do whatever I dang will please, you know. It's a little bit of an exaggeration, but I like to say it very much. And, uh, and I can address this stuff. I don't, and, and it needs to be addressed, okay? As, but unfortunately, pastors as employees of the church, it can seem self-serving. They want to keep their motives pure. They don't want to be stereotyped with the charlatans of the wealth and health. You know, the temptation is just to put a box in the back. And, you know, if, if you feel like the Lord is speaking to you, you know, maybe if you would consider, you know, I don't want to put any pressure, but if you might, if you feel prompted, if you have a witness, if you, if you feel something special, maybe put a little money in there. And yet... Uh, If we're not careful, pastors are really going to fail in their responsibility to charge the rich to be careful in this area of money, to be sure that we steward the resources that belong to God that have been entrusted to us in a way that brings them the glory he deserves and accomplishes the mission that he's called us to. It really matters. It's a really important area. And sadly, because it doesn't get addressed very much, Craig gave a message not too long ago on, on finances rocking. Of course, you would know that. But, uh, so, you know, pull that thing back up. It's, it's online. But uh, we, need, we need to engage this issue. So don't, don't be uncomfortable. Let's, let's benefit from what God's word has to say to us here, okay? 
We've got to be vigilant. If we're not careful, the cultural idol of materialism, which is a primary influence in the city of Frisco in North Texas, it's going to slowly emasculate the church of its power, and it's going to undermine our influence and our witness both in our city and in the world. We've got to get this financial thing right. Uh, Puritan pastor Cotton Mather from the 1700s, very insightful quote here about how materialism affects the church. Here's the quote. Religion begat prosperity and the daughter devoured the mother. I'll say it one more time. Religion begat prosperity, but the daughter devoured the mother. It's amazing that... uh, if you were to look through the progression of, of history, of world history, the profound impact that the gospel has had in lifting society. You see that it's the truth of the gospel that's at the core of the Reformation in the 1500s and uh, how the Reformation fueled the Industrial Age and the Industrial Age leads to the economic bounty and and flourishing that we experience in Western civilization. But the tragedy is that people reject the gospel, but they worship the fruit of what the gospel produced in culture. If you were to go back in time, the way we live today, the blessing, the the joys of technology, all of those things are the fruit of people understanding that they're created in God's image, that they have unique value and that God has called them with good works to do for his glory. And so people in the Reformation engage that understanding of vocation and the ripple effect of that was things built, built better and new ideas and creativity and industry and flourishing and the root of it all is the gospel. But if we're not careful... The fruit of the gospel will devour the mama. And materialism can devour the church. Materialism is devouring the majority of Western Christianity. It is tragic. It's terrifying. Jesus warns us in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. And we're all familiar with this, but some of the seeds fall among the weeds, the seeds of God's word, the seeds of God's life, the seeds of God's purpose, they, they fall among the weeds. And, and what happens? The cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and it becomes fruitless. That's terrifying. I, I, I don't want to be that guy, okay? I, I don't want to be a guy who, who God has sown abundantly in, has given so much in his word and in opportunities and in friends and opportunities for growth and a beautiful church. I don't mean physically. I mean beautiful people, a, a beautiful place to grow in Christ and to allow the riches of this life, the deceitfulness, it's deceptive, to choke out the call to the life that is truly life. That's what we're called to. If our lives aren't bearing rich gospel fruit, 
if our lives aren't, aren't bearing the fruit of joyful generosity, of overflow, of care for others, others orientation, okay? We need to stop. If we're just running and gunning, if we're going and blowing, and I don't know, I'll get a few more of those in there, but, and we're just, we're just, life is out of control, and we're not aligned with what God's eternal purpose is. We're not really moving forward in the things that matter most. We need to stop and evaluate if the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches are actually emasculating the power of the gospel in me. Is that what's going on? It's a matter of spiritual life and death. It's really important. And Paul charges Timothy to warn, to charge the rich of this age, which is you and I, with some specific snares that they need to be aware of. The first snare for the rich is the snare of a false sense of significance, a false sense of significance. It says, charge them not to be haughty, not to be haughty. Haughtiness is when we see ourselves as somehow more valuable or more important than other people. And financial position, possessions, they can make people haughty. Uh, we, we start to not know ourselves very well, and we don't realize how we may come across to others. And, it, and it's so sad that when people begin to find their identity in the stuff that they're able to do and the position that they hold and the money that they've got and all that kind of stuff, rather than finding their identity in the God who graciously gave them all of that stuff as a gift. It's just so sad. It's so tragic. And yet haughtiness can be a a real danger. Here's, Here's just a couple of pop quizzes to see if haughtiness, I know I would think haughty, first of all, it's an old fashioned word. I don't even know what it means. Can't be me. But, but let's just ask ourselves a couple of questions here. First of all, how do we choose friends? How do we choose friends? Do we choose friends based on the ability to love and serve others, to grow in Christ, to uh, esteem differences and, and accomplish more through our friendship than I might be able to accomplish alone? How do I, how do I choose friendships? Or are my friends primarily people that are just like me. They're just like me. They have the same kind of job. They make the same kind of money. They do the same kind of thing. At your work, let's ask another question. Do you grab lunch with a broad cross-section of employees uh, at your place of work? Or do you really just hang with people with a similar corporate status? It might be evidence of haughtiness. Guess what? We're all the same, right? Because one guy is working the mail room and you're in the, you know, the sales VP. Is, I mean, really, do we really believe there's a significant difference b- between us except for God's sovereign positioning and his grace toward us? Shouldn't that inform the kind of people that we reach out to and build relationships with? How about in the church? Are relationships in the church based on a common vision for God's desire for his body, the church, a people of every race and socioeconomic background joined in Christ for the glory of God and the good of the world? Or do we hang with people that are just like me? 
you know, the guys who like fishing are the guys that like this or the, the girls who have an interest in whatever. Similar money, similar vacation interests, similar fill, fill in the blank, right? The church looks like heaven when plumbers hang with CEOs. The church looks like the church when consultants hang with cleaning ladies. Because we're all the same. There's no difference except for God's gracious gifts. And the cleaning lady probably knows some stuff that the consultant really needs to benefit from. You know? We need, we need friends of all kinds. Of, we don't want to be haughty. Guess what, though? It's, it's, we have to be careful, don't we? We're all the same at the foot of the cross. The second snare of the rich that we need to be aware of is a false sense of security. A false sense of security, not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Christina Onassis had it all. She was the heiress of Greek shipping tycoon Aristotle Onassis. Her mother-in-law was Jackie Kennedy. Christina had an annual income. Check this one out. She had an annual income of a million dollars a week. million dollars a week. When, when Christina was out of Diet Coke in Greece, she would dispatch her private jet on a $30,000 round trip to the U.S. to get a few cases and keep the inventory up. Once after a ski trip in the Alps with her buddies, she sent her personal helicopter back to Swiss, Switzerland to recover a misplaced David Bowie tape that she had left there, okay? But tragically, uh, all the money in the world could not satisfy or save poor Christina. She died of heart failure brought on by extreme dieting and barbiturates at the age of 39. In this present age, riches can... They, they can do some things, but they're vanishing. They're vanishing. It passes that quick. I love the illustration of Randy Alcorn who talks about the difference between the dot and the line. Have you heard that illustration? Not if you know that illustration. If not, I'm going to give it. The dot represents life in this world. Brief. The line is the reality of the age to come. We don't want to live for the dot. We want to live for the line. And if the dot means sacrifice and difficulty, suffering, challenges, but the line makes it all worth it in spades, you don't want to live for the dot. You want to live for the line, okay, right? And even if the dot is full of a million bucks a week, you don't, you don't want to do that because the line is what matters. And so we want to be people of the line, not the dot. And that has real ramifications. You, you not only can't take it with you when you go, you can't be sure you're going to keep it uh, while you're here, right? Money is uncertain. It's unstable. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. 
When your eyes light on it, it's gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings like an eagle flying to heaven. It's gone. Money's gone. So what's the answer? Well, the scripture tells us that we're to not set our hope on the instability and uncertainty of riches, but to fix our hope in God. God who richly provides all things for us to enjoy. And how wonderful that Paul doesn't just go into telling the rich that they need to get rid of all of their money and their possessions. No, it's, it's, not, that, it's not what they have. It's where their hope is. He doesn't tell them to get rid of their money. He tells them not to place their hope in it. He doesn't tell the Ephesian church to move from materialism to aestheticism. Say that three times. From materialism to aestheticism, from making vows, you know, rather that we leave all of our stuff and now we're called to make vows of poverty, we're going to wear hair shirts, we're going to join a monastery. Well, why, why aren't we called to do that? Well, because of our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father is the kind of Father that provides all things for us to richly enjoy. How wonderful. He created a beautiful world for us to richly enjoy. He created our bodies to be able to engage the world. He, he made cherries. He made, are, are you eating peaches this time of year? The Lord made peaches. I could preach the gospel from a peach. It's the most amazing thing. You cut into that thing. It's hanging on a tree. Why is it there? Because God's good. You agree? It's colorful. It's peach. It's orange colored, whatever that color is. Red, peach, orangey, whatever. It's delicious. Why? Because God's good. He created everything for us to richly enjoy. Marital sex is good. Cause God, why? Because God's so good. Friendships are good. Clothes that, that work and fit are really good. Enjoy it. A great meal is really good. Why? Because I deserve it? No, because God is so good. He's so generous and he gives us a rich generous, blessed life to enjoy as an expression of his kindness. Gordon Fee, who's a scholar, writes, enjoyment does not mean self-indulgent living. The reason everything can be enjoyed lies in the recognition that everything, including one's, one's wealth, is a gift, the expression of God's gracious generosity. First Timothy 4, earlier in the chapter, uh, says that all, that all of the good things of life are to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. The Bible celebrates the good things of life. Next, Paul challenges Timothy to warn the rich of their age and to give them some practical action steps that very much apply to us. Steps that will help us guard against the snares of riches. Number one, they're to do good. To do good. As image bearers of the God who created it all so abundantly, so generously, so kindly, so extravagantly, we're called to be like him in similar acts of generosity. That's who we are. 
That's who we're created to be in Christ. We're image bearers of Jesus Christ and called to reflect and represent him in acts of generosity. We need to ask ourselves how, we need to ask ourselves and we need to pray intentionally and ask the Lord how he wants us to use the money and the possessions that he's entrusted to us. How do we use our resources to best love the people and meet the needs in our little slice of life initially and then beyond? How do we do that? That's who we are. That's what we're created for. And we need to be very intentional about our understanding of how we're supposed to engage the issue of material possessions and riches which we all have. Okay? Life in Christ is not just about what we believe. And that's one of the dangers about being in a church that has a really rich theological foundation to it. There's always new stuff to learn. There's always wonderful insights. The the glory of God's goodness is all-consuming and can fill our minds. And if we're not careful, we can think that what we know is who we are. And it's just not true. In fact, arrogance, the scripture says, knowledge, the scripture says, it puffs us up. It'll make us haughty. There's a spiritual haughtiness, not just a, a financial haughtiness. And we need to be careful that we're doers of the word, right? James, the Lord's brother, wrote in James, uh, James 1, be doers of the word, not hearers only who deceive themselves. There's, there is deception creeping around when we know more than we're applying. We've got to be really careful, don't we? So they're charged to do good. Second, Paul kind of lays it on. He goes from one tier to the next. They're supposed to do good. Second, they're supposed to be rich in good works. One of the authors that I read said this. I thought this was really funny. When it comes to doing good deeds... Most Christians are lower middle class. I thought that was funny. (laughs) When it comes to doing good deeds, most Christians are lower middle class. We've never learned that the way to be truly wealthy is to give our lives away for Jesus Christ. In the book, there's a wonderful book I've been reading over the last weeks. It's called Neither Poverty or Riches. It's written by a guy named Craig Blomberg, um, Denver Seminary. Here's what he says. In the days of the early church, it was generosity more than anything else that showed the difference between Christianity and paganism. The pagans did not care for the poor because the poor could give them nothing in return. What made the Christians different is that they did care for the poor. And we know in Acts 4 it says there wasn't a needy one among them because people who had resources sold them, did what they needed to do to bring their abundance in to meet the needs of the local church. Continuing on here, not only did Christians care for their own poor, they also cared for the pagan poor. The followers of Christ were the ones who fed the hungry and cared for the lepers, rescued the children who'd been left out to die. And by the second century, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, was able to boast that the Christians spend more on the poor in the street than the pagans spend in the temple. The result was the rapid worldwide expansion of the gospel. There's a direct, you got a burden for the gospel? Me too. 
there's a direct correlation between impact and our generosity. You can, I was just in San Antonio yesterday. My grandson came out of boot camp and went over, we went over to the Alamo and you had a street, street preacher there. I love street preachers. Gotta, gotta, let's hear for that guy. Anybody who's, and it was hot. 50% uh, humidity. It was nasty. This guy is preaching like a wild man. But guess what? Nobody, nobody's listening. It's a shame. It's, a, it's an old style, maybe a, a, a bit dated approach. But just an example, and I don't mean to bring attention to myself, but recently I had a friend who works for me, had a financial need, and Sharon and I talked about it and felt like we should, we should meet the need. The rela- this, this guy's an unbeliever. The relationship went from one of professional courtesy to like best friends uh, instantly. And I, I could have talked, that guy, he worked for me. He would have to listen. I could corner him. He, would, he, he, he couldn't leave. He couldn't check out. He couldn't go home. The boss is talking. Uh, but generosity, the ability to meet a need, it just changed everything. It changed everything. And I mean, the relationship, he now and his family, just things are dramatically changed over, you know, it wasn't any, it, we were able to do it. Thank the Lord we were able to do it. But, uh, but it's under, important to understand that generosity and the proclamation of the gospel in our own world and to the nations is all tied with the issue of generosity. Generous Christians could have the same, listen to this, generous Christians could have the same impact on the world today. The facts are this, that if Christians would simply tithe, there's that word, sorry guys, if Christians would just tithe, there would be enough financial resources to put world hunger to an end overnight and it wouldn't even affect the budgets of the local churches. Local churches carry on just like normal. If Christians would just tithe, we could change the world. Uh, What kind of a witness would that, what's happened to the witness of the church as an amazingly generous, self-sacrificial people who are more concerned for the issues of the world than their own lifestyle? We gotta be really careful living in Frisco, Texas. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we've got 8 through 9 stamped by the front door out on the outside. It's a great verse, but you've got to have 10 to it. I wish we had a little bigger square out there. But we all know it, Ephesians uh, 2, 8, and 9, for by grace we're saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's the free gift of God, lest no one should boast. But, so the first part tells us the first part of the gospel that we're saved by grace. It's amazing. None of us have done anything to deserve it. It should leave us in awe. But you have to have the second part of the gospel, which is verse 10. For we're his workmanship. We're not just believers. We're image bearers. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. That's why we exist. That's what it means to be a believer. We're not just right in the theological stuff. The gospel changes everything we are, everything we own, everything we do, everywhere we go, everything. Jesus is Lord of everything. That's biblical Christianity. And if our Christianity is different than that, 
It's okay. You can just stop that nonsense and let's, let's get with the true program of what real biblical Christianity is. And we've got to be careful, man. The church in the world over the last decades, it doesn't look like the church is supposed to look. We've got to be careful that that doesn't uh, become who we are as Grace Church. We've got to be careful. Okay, third action step. Be gracious, or excuse me, be generous and ready to share. Be generous and ready to share. Be generous. Why is generosity so important? Why does it matter? Why can't somebody else be generous? Why do I need to do that? Well, because generosity is gospel action. Generosity is gospel visualization. There's gospel words, I know, but generosity is gospel power in action. It's God's love indeed. And we need to be formed. We need to be people of generosity. To appropriately respond to the amazing grace and generosity that God's extended to us in Christ means to freely offer not only our lives, but also our possessions and our resources to him for his glory. I remember, and I won't, I won't take too long on this, but there was a guy named Juan Carlos Ortiz, who was an a, a Argentine preacher I heard as a brand new believer. And he uh, used to tell this thing about uh, what it meant to give your life to Jesus and become a disciple. And, the, you know, you, the guy would say, uh, you know, I, Lord, I, I, I'm so grateful for what you've done for me. I give you my life. And the Lord responds and says, that's good. I like that. I'll, I'll receive your life. Uh, thank you so much. Do you have any possessions? Well, yes, Lord, I, 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 not much. Well, tell me what you got. Well, I, I, I have a car. Actually, I have two cars. Oh, thank you. I'll take those. Do you have anything else? Well, uh, we, we have a home. Right? We, thank you. I'll take that. You just gave your life to me. You gave me everything you are, right? I'll take that. Anything else? Well, who's that behind you? Well, that's my wife. Those are my children. Oh, I'll take those too. Uh, how about your bank account? Well, I don't have much. Well, I'll take that. And then, but the whole thing he goes through is what it really means to become a disciple where we really turn everything over to the Lord. And then at the end of his illustration, which I can't do as good as him, but it's really funny. Uh, he says, but okay, it's all mine now. Can we clear on this? I got your life. I got your stuff. You get salvation. You get forgiveness of your sins. You get the realities of the new heaven and the new earth. You got a lot to look forward to. But I want you to do me a favor. It's all mine, right? Yes, Lord, it's all yours. I just want you to, I'm going to let you keep the car at your house for a little while. But if Bill needs it, I want you to borrow, let him borrow it. And, and don't get an attitude if he doesn't put gas back in the tank when you're done. Or you, I'm going to let you stay in my house, the Lord says. But I want you to, on Wednesdays, every other week, I want you to open that thing up for community group. And again, don't have an attitude when everybody says, you know, hey, do you want us to help and clean up? And you say, oh, no, I'm fine. And then they really don't stay and help. And then, and then you need to put it all away. So, uh, and my wife, I'm going to let you stay married to her, okay? But I need you to realize that she's mine. You better treat her right, okay? And those kids, so anyway, you go through the whole story there. But there's, a, there's an issue of real discipleship, what it means, that it's just really, it's helpful. It's a helpful reminder, isn't it? <laughs> so the big question, guess what? The big question is, how much is generous? How much? How much do I have to give and be generous? 
you know, I already dropped the tithe word. Um, actually, if you wanted to, to keep the Old Testament tithe, uh, there are actually three of them, and the total of it is 23%. So for, uh, you know, people who think that they've, they've arrived at their tithing, no, the, the Old Testament law is way more strict than that. And the, the New Testament does not address tithing, um, but the principle is generosity. But here's the point. How tragic would it be if the Old Testament law produced greater generosity than New Testament grace and salvation in Christ? How sad would that be if if the pocketbook of Old Testament law keepers was more generous than those that have been transformed by the gospel of grace. Uh, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. So the point of that is, uh, do we have, are we required to tithe? No, absolutely not. Is the tithe insignificant? No. The tithe is, is very meaningful. And a you know, key verse on this thing, everybody knows this, but it, you gotta, it's so good. Matthew 3.10, it says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and test me in this. I love that, that phrase. Test me in this, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open for you the windows of heaven that you, and pour out for you a blessing until you, you can't contain it, until you have no more need. Sadly, uh, average churchgoers uh, give less than 3% annually, churchgoers, evangelicals. It's a different day, folks. Uh, People's money priorities have dramatically changed over the last couple of decades. If you're able to tithe by God's grace, that is tremendous. If you're not able to tithe, just, it's okay. It's okay. We're all a mess. Nobody has arrived. We come to Christ a mess. We stay a mess until we meet him face to face. We're all in process. And our pocketbook reflects the reality of the progression that's going on with us. None of us have arrived yet. But let me just say this. Move that direction. If you're not able to give anything, give. Why? Because we serve a Savior who gave his life. And we're called as his image bearers. Give. If you're able to give a percent of what you give a percent, try, shoot for two. Set a goal over the next year to get up to being able to give 10%. Why? Because you've got to do it? No. Because we want you to take hold of that which is truly life. We want you to step into living a gospel life where you're an image bearer of Jesus and the glory of his goodness and generosity touches all the people around you. And we become a church that reflects the life that's really life. And when, when we touch our pocketbooks, we touch our hearts, right? You touch my money, you touch my heart. Share, and I, I thought, you know, I was reading in a book and a guy gave some personal examples. And normally, I know they say pastors should not give personal stuff. I don't care. I want to be practical with you and I, and I, want, to, uh, I want to be helpful. When Sharon and I first got married, been married 35 years, we began with a real conviction that, that we started tithing. We started. So we didn't make a lot of decisions that snared us and handicapped us and imprisoned us financially so we couldn't do a dang thing. So we began tithing, and by God's grace, 
the, the joy of every year, one of the great joys of every year is when the tax return gets done and we're able to see, honey, high five, we gave more this year than we did the year before. And over the years, by God's grace, and I know there's many, many people in the room that say the same kind of story, by God's grace and his faithfulness in, to stand over his scripture in Malachi 3, to test him in this, to bring the full tithe into the storehouse, to test him in this and see if he won't open the windows of heaven. He has opened the windows of heaven on us. Let me tell you, our story is not about personal, ask him, my story is not about personal discipline and sacrifice. I, that, I am not wired that way. I'm spontaneous. I'm a, I'm a mess. And the reason God has blessed us is all because of his generous goodness and, and his faithfulness. When we put him to the test in this, see if I won't open the windows of heaven. And he has. He has. It's unbelievable. And here we are, 35 years later, able to give you know, multiple times more than we ever dreamed when we began. And he wants you to have the same joy. Because you got to give? No, because he wants you to take hold of the life that's really life. What a, what a joy. Second part of that is be ready to share. You can't be ready to share if you're not prepared. Ready. Ready to share. Generosity is impossible without something to give. And we can't give if we don't have financial margin. We need financial margin. We need to make the changes to do whatever we've got to do to have financial margin to be able to be generous and reflect the glory of our generous God John Wesley's famous quote. How do you do this stuff? Here's John Wesley's quote. Do all you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. There's, there's, the, there's a Wesley's quote on how do you manage your resources. A more simple, modern way to look at it might be this. Four real simple points. Work diligently. Work diligently. God's given you gifts. God's given you abilities. God's given you people that you can serve and create value for. Work diligently. Work wholeheartedly. Don't let it own you, but work diligently. Number two, give generously. Be a faithful image bearer of the one who called you to himself. I could unpack this whole, each of these could be a, a message. Number three, save intentionally. Provide for yourself and do what you need to do so other people don't have to step in and cover stuff when, when things go weird because they will go weird. The, thing, the riches are uncertain, okay? And number four, and here's a big one in Frisco, live appropriately. Live appropriately. You can't judge a book by the cover. You can't tell by looking if somebody drives down the road in their Beamer whether, whether they paid cash for that thing and it's just a m- m- minimal dot in their budget and they can easily afford to do that and they can give generously and their life is amazingly pleasing to God or whether that guy leases it, he doesn't really even own it, it's just image thing, he's totally busted, his bills are up his nose and he's a mess. You can't tell by looking, you can't judge a book by looking at the cover, okay? But we need to work diligently, we need to give generously. After our work, we need to begin giving. We need to learn how to give and in giving, we're going to find God's blessing and God's generosity to, to us. We need to save intentionally and we need to live 
appropriately. There's, here's a great book, and there's a couple of these out. There'll be more coming. This is called The Money Challenge. This is written by Art Rayner. Great little nugget book, super simple. You can read it, but it'll help tune your thinking on finances. In here, he talks about four generosity killers, four generosity killers. The first one, it's our desires. It's our desires. If we're not careful, our desires are to find our identity in stuff to keep up with the Joneses, to keep an image, our desires. We need our desires realigned so that we find our wholeness and our identity in our relationship with Jesus, that he's the one we want. His purpose is what we want to be joined to. We want to take hold of the life that's truly life. That's who we are. We're taking a hold of it. We're gripping it, okay? So first is our desires. The second one is debt. Debt. Presuming on tomorrow that leads to slavery over past decisions. I know, we're all in debt. Everybody's in debt. We've got to get out of debt. You've got to get out of debt. And if that, means that, that, if that means you need to change, if you need to live more appropriately to get out of debt, get out of debt. Get free so you can live generously. Number three, disorganization. No plan, no budget, no readiness to share is where that leads. And then the fourth one, which is so tragic, is divorce because it, it divides families and now you have double expenses and double overhead and all that stuff. Let me wrap with some amazing motivators. In doing these things, in doing these things, the word of God says that we're storing up riches. We're storing up treasures in heaven. My thinking of heaven has changed a little bit. I mean, it's not just some distant place. We're storing up treasures for the new heavens and the new earth, for the new age to come. The, the, the ongoing work that God has for his church as we move from the dot to the line. We're, in giving now, we're storing up treasure. Mysteriously in God's divine economy, the sacrificial choices that we make in this age prove to be the wisest, the most personally beneficial choices that we could possibly make when we enter the age to come, which for some of us is right around the corner. In cultivating a life of loving generosity, we're actually storing up treasure that, we can, ne- that can never lose its value. It can never be broken into and stolen. And then the second Second thing is they're laying up a good foundation for the future. How interesting that, that giving now, what does that mean? Laying a good foundation for the future. Well, I, I've, I've built a couple of houses. I've built a business building. I know one thing about foundations. If you're laying a foundation, there's something that's going to be built on that. And that by our generosity today, we are somehow, and this is, again, we see through a glass dimly. I don't get it, but you can, you can get a taste of it. There's something that awaits us that as we live this image-bearing life of God's goodness and generosity, that we are playing a role with God in laying a foundation for a whole new chapter of good works that he's prepared for us when we enter into the new heavens and the new earth. The story is not over. This is just the dot. The line is yet to come. And the Lord's preparing, and there's actually fruit in our labors today that pass through the veil somehow. I don't get it, but that's what it says. And I want to be wise. I want to be a good... I don't want to... Uh, hoard Confederate money. 
because the union money is coming next week and it's going to be worthless. We don't want to hoard the riches of this age. They're going to be gone in a blink. Your stuff's going to be gone. It's going to be gone. But there's a whole nother world, a whole nother chapter that we can be intentionally investing in through our generosity and love. We can be a part of it today. It's what makes people beautiful. It's what reflects the glory of Jesus. It's what makes churches profoundly significant. I want that. Don't we want that together? Why? Because you've got to do it, because somebody's looking, because God will be mad. No, the Lord wants every one of us, he wants this church to take hold of the life that is really life in Christ and be everything that he's called us to be. Let's pray together. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.